0: Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. In this episode, like a bad penny, like a recurring boil, he's back. That's right. You know who I'm talking about. Now, I guessed wrong on this, but why is Donald Trump running for president yet again? Anybody got any answers? Elon Musk may have inflicted a death blow on Twitter. Can he stop the bleeding? Quick takes on Nancy Pelosi stepping aside from her role as House Speaker. More homophobic murders, this time in Colorado. And of course, there have been previous murders in Colorado, mass shootings in Colorado before. And a conversation with one of New York City's early nightlife entrepreneurs, Noel Hankin, author of the new book, After Dark. But first, I hate to be wrong, much less wrong, twice in consecutive weeks. I already admitted I was wrong about the midterms, and now I was wrong about Donald Trump. I've been saying for a while now that I didn't think he'd run for president again. Yet here he is with his make America great again, again. Maybe Jonathan Wiseman of the New York Times got it right. In Trump's bizarre world, it's heads I win and tails you lose. Yet it's without doubt that the midterm elections didn't exactly burnish his brand. Many of his former allies took time out of their busy schedules to blame him for the lowered, depressed results. This is the first time since 2016 the former president has had the bulk of his party in thrall, and out of thrall, as it turns out. So tight has been his grip that the criticisms from within the GOP rolled off his back, even this time around. That would be, of course, because Trump can do no wrong, according to Trump. Chase in point was his announcement that he was running for president again. He downplayed, ironically enough, the 2020 election debacle in favor of telling his hand-picked audience how wonderful things were when he ran the country and how terrible the country is today, just two years after he left. Not even two years after he left. Remember, this is the guy who became a star by bending down and twisting his own reality. Some may have forgotten that he used to call media outlets pretending to be a tipster to tout his own version of reality. And it should come as no surprise, that seems to be exactly what he is still doing. The avoidance of both reality and responsibility is born from lessons Donald Trump's father taught him. Suffice to say, he learned those lessons well. He would do well to pay attention to this. If you want to have any hope at all of returning to the White House in 2024, you need to lose the 2020 narrative, and you need to lose it ASAP. Look at it this way, as Jonathan Wiseman put it in the New York Times. Quote, Trump's hand-picked candidates for the Senate in Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada all lost. His most ardent and loyal followers fell short, some far short, in their quests for the governorships of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Two of his revenge picks to knock off House Republicans who voted to impeach him lost critical general election races in both Michigan and Washington. Not exactly the mark of a winner, right? But wait, this is Donald Trump. The failure of a number of his candidates is not his fault. Not his fault at all. Let's look at history, recent history. He said, I don't take responsibility at all when asked about the nation's sluggish response to COVID-19. He blamed Barack Obama, who had been out of office for years. He refused to acknowledge any responsibility for the January 6th insurrection, and he continues to avoid that responsibility. He refused to take any responsibility for the fact that Republicans couldn't pass an alternative to the Affordable Care Act when they had the chance. The list goes on and on. Make no mistake, Donald Trump would hate to see the mantle of two-time loser attached to his name. If it doesn't look good for him, I still think, Donald Trump, despite having announced last week, will eventually drop out. A few good drubbings by Ron DeSantis, for example, in crucial primary states, could, in fact, do the trick. Up next, Trump's corporate cousin, Elon Musk, makes a fool of himself, and more than once. Nancy Pelosi steps down as House Speaker, with her head held high, and homophobia. Claims five lives in Colorado. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. If anyone seems bent on destroying something he just bought, it's Elon Musk. He buys Twitter, promptly fires a bunch of executives. Then a larger bunch of workers, so many, in fact, that he had to ask some of them if they wanted to come back. Then he sends the remaining workers an email demanding they agree to working hardcore, whatever in the world that means, or be gone. Many apparently chose the latter. He then shut down the company last weekend amid reports that his mass firings may have violated California labor law. Yet the topper was to poll Twitter users as to whether or not Donald Trump should be reinstated to the site. The vote was yes, so he did. Now take a deep breath everybody. That hardcore stuff is simply a bunch of crap. You get workers to commit to hardcore by your own example. Right now, there's no guarantee Musk won't dispose of Twitter like a kid gets rid of a plaything after New Year's. He did say already publicly that he plans to step back from the day-to-day operation of Twitter. Does that sound to you like somebody who's committed for the long term? Or is this simply a chess piece to be bought and discarded no matter what cost to him because he's the richest man in the world? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi stepped down last week She was the first woman to serve in that role, and although she oftentimes came across as the living, breathing embodiment of the Democratic establishment, she got a lot done in 20-odd years. The Affordable Care Act was shepherded through the House under her auspices, as was the Dodd-Frank banking reforms and the American Rescue Plan. It's a shame she now must deal with the aftermath of an attack on her husband that nearly took his life. All in all, however, she did a good job. Now, I say that knowing, again, that there are a lot of progressives, and I was part of the throng that did in the past criticize her for being too slow to enact reforms and too slow to push progressive legislation. And I think she plead guilty on both counts. But again, all in all, a job well done. I personally am pulling for Brooklyn Congressman Hakeem Jeffries to become House Minority Leader. I first met Hakeem Jeffries when he began his political career, and I believe he's as sincere a politician as you're gonna find in today's Washington. With a little bit of luck, he won't stay Minority Leader if he wins for long. Now we must talk about the homophobic attack in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Five people were killed and 18 were injured. It's the latest hate crime against the LGBTQ community. The suspected gunman, Anderson Lee Aldrich, was subdued by patrons at the Q Club, a place that was founded in 2002 to provide a safe haven for LGBTQ people in Colorado's second largest city. Think about that for a minute. The Q Club started in 2002 and it was started to provide a safe haven for LGBTQ people. How sad it is that that community in Colorado Springs felt unsafe. And now that has tragically been made manifest. Aldrich is in custody and he should have the book thrown at him once he gets to the trial. Up next, a trip down memory lane into the beginnings of the disco phenomenon in the country's largest city. We'll talk to entrepreneur Noel Hankin, author of the book After Dark, The Birth of the Disco Dance Party. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of
1: Politics and Culture with Mark Riley.
0: Welcome back to The Intersection. New York nightlife has gone through many incarnations through the years. The birth of what most call disco was an exciting time for dancers, DJs, and the entrepreneurs who opened the clubs, those early, early clubs. One of the most prominent groups to open clubs was called the Best of Friends, who broke new ground on several levels. Noel Hankin, one of the Best of Friends, has written a new book, After Dark, Birth of of the disco dance party. We have a conversation with him which follows. It is a pleasure to welcome to our microphones a certainly important entrepreneur in nightlife in New York City, going back to the early 1970s, when he was part of a group called The Best of Friends. And they were the first African-American group of entrepreneurs to open nightclubs, not one nightclub, but several nightclubs Mm -hmm. in Midtown Manhattan. His name is Noel Hankin, and he's written a book, an award-winning book, called After Dark, The Birth of the Disco Dance Party. Noel, it's a pleasure
1: to have you with us
0: on The Intersection.
1: Thank you so much. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have a chance to talk about After Dark because it, it tells a story that's never been told before. Absolutely and it, not. And I think it's a very important part of New York history and really American
0: history. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Tell us, first of all... Um, about the structure of the best of friends and how you guys all came together.
1: Well, we were a social club. You know, back then, social clubs were very common and popular. And we formed a social club when we were, were seniors about to graduate from college so that we could give dances with live bands. That was uh, just for uh, as a social outlet. And we we had bands like Junior Walker and the All-Stars and Eddie Palmieri, uh, groups like that, Jimmy Castor, mm-hmm. and um, I got a job at Young and Rubicam back then, the largest ad agency in the country. Sure, 1970, February 1970, and one day I got invited to a birthday party at a club called La Martinique. Oh, and, I remember
0: uh, that was on Fifty Seventh Street. No,
1: that's correct, and I had never heard of it, had never been there. This is 1970 uh, in the fall, and uh, I went to this birthday party and it had recorded music and about 200 black folks dancing midweek as if it was a Saturday night, right there in (laughs) midtown. And that was was new.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: And I got so excited, I called an emergency meeting of my social club, The Best of Friends. And I said, you know, instead of giving dances with live bands, we should really try catering to this new crop of black folks working in midtown Manhattan like I was. I was brand new, 1970. Mm -hmm. and uh, put together weekly events with recorded music and replicate what I experienced at that birthday party.
0: Incredible. And that wasn't uh, really, that wasn't, uh, I'm not sure many in our audience
1: understand this. This was not the norm back then. No, it was not. After work, everybody of color left Midtown and went uptown to Harlem or the outer boroughs to Black neighborhoods to socialize and hang out. They never hung out in Midtown Manhattan. Not until we got a hold of them, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and it, was, it was a thrill because they never really felt that welcome at, at a lot of the venues in Midtown. I mean, you would you know, find a few folks who would, might go to, you know, the Peppermint Lounge or Hippopotamus, but you would always be the only one.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the music
1: wasn't right. And, and when, uh, when we put together our event, we made sure the music was right. And Danny and CP, two of my partners who taught themselves how to DJ, they figured out a way to take two copies of the same record and extend the play on a particularly hot song like Theme from Shaft. And it just drove people crazy. They had never experienced anything like that before. And uh, so it was fresh and exciting. When did you
0: decide to actually Invest in brick and mortar buildings as opposed to giving one offs in different spaces, mm-hmm. whether it was the Ginza or wherever. Um, when did you decide, you know what, we need to put this together and actually get a physical space?
1: Well, when we started off, we, we didn't go to the La Martinique as the first uh, event. We, we started off at the Ginza actually mm-hmm. because it was a little smaller. And uh, the Ginza was so successful, we moved to La Martinique shortly afterward. And, and that's much a much bigger space. We fill that immediately, and with that experience, we knew we had to build our own club. So we started saving uh, the, the money. We didn't spend any of it. Uh, we really? were netting over a million dollars a year back then, by the way. So by 1973, we uh, we were forced to build our start building our own clubs because one by one, these clubs either closed down or they decided to stand at the door, collect the money themselves or they restricted us from going on, having events on certain nights. So we knew at some point we'd have to build our own clubs. And that happened in 1973, when we built our first club in Queens, where most of us lived, in order to learn how to manage a bar. That was Lucifer's, right? Lucifer's, that's right, on Linda Boulevard, 217th Street. We learned how to manage the bar, how to hire, how to, how to run an operation, instead of just standing at the door collecting the money. And once we were comfortable with running a bar, we moved to Manhattan and built Leviticus, which was our flagship. That yeah. was 1974. That was
0: on 33rd Street. Correct. In, in, between in the Broadway. shadow of the Empire State Building. Yes, yeah, same block as the Empire State Building, that's right. Now, let me ask you this, Noel, because uh, having worked for a long time for a Black-owned radio station, I know how difficult it was initially for Percy Sutton, who was my boss and an incredible human being. Yes. To get the money to invest in those radio stations. Was it mm-hmm. difficult for you to not put together the money, because I think you guys did that, but was yeah. it difficult to get a space? Was, did you face discrimination in trying to procure a space in Midtown Manhattan,
1: where there were very few black owned businesses at the time? Yeah, we did run into several problems uh, for example, we tried to buy a space uh, when I say buy, you know, a long term lease mm-hmm. on the east side of Manhattan, because that's where most of our promoted events were. And um, the the owner refused to uh, give us a lease because we were a bunch of black, young black guys. Mm-hmm. And so we had to go to the west side. And uh, we, we, it was a Chinese restaurant where Leviticus uh, was built was a Chinese restaurant, large Chinese restaurant, and we transformed it into a nightclub. But uh, we we wanted to be on the East side, but because of discrimination, we had to go to the West side. And once we built it, you had to get a cabaret license in order to allow dancing. If you had more than a hundred guests, you have to have a cabaret license if you have dancing back then.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because cabaret licenses historically were used to exclude Black musicians from playing in certain clubs uh, mm-hmm. because if they had a record, you could not play
1: in a licensed club back then. That's I'm going correct. back to
0: the 30s and 40s.
1: It was really hard to get that cabaret license. They, uh, The city of New York issues it, and they investigated us thoroughly. They spoke to our neighbors, our family members. They wanted to make sure we weren't uh, drug dealers mm-hmm. because you got to keep in mind, in 1970. Three seventy four. When we were working on this, it was high crime in New York City. Oh yeah, extraordinarily high crime. It was out of control, and so a bunch of young black guys, early in our early twenties, they didn't believe us. Uh, so it took six months to get that license. After we built the club, we built it, finished. Had to wait six months to get the cabaret license.
0: Now, was it uh, after you got everything up and running at Leviticus? Did you depend on the same crowd that you had going to La Martinique and maybe some of these other places, or did you build an entirely new crowd
1: going to the Martinique? No, it was basically the core was the same crowd. These were loyal followers. You know, we were so confident uh, because we were so successful in putting together social events and, uh, and, and we had a strong following. So we had that core. But of course, Given the location and the situation, uh, it was the hard, the, the loyal following was there, plus new guests, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of new people from the UN, for example, uh, ah. a lot of international folks.
0: Our guest is Noel Hankin. He's the author of After Dark, Birth of the Disco Dance Party. Now, this is going to be a little inside baseball because I was working at WLIB and WBLS at the time. But talk about your relationship, the best of friends relationship with radio.
1: Well, it was very interesting because we avoided radio advertising. And the reason why we did that is because we were afraid of getting too many of the wrong people who could create a problem. Our clubs were inexpensive in terms of the admission fee. So it was low cost. So almost anybody could afford it. And that had a real positive side in that you had CEOs and mailroom clerks together on the dance floor. <laughs> Everybody was able to come. But what we did was um, we tried to, this was our formula, we tried to focus on people we knew and their friends. Okay. And so I always traveled around with a pocket full of invites and flyers. And when I bumped into someone who was attractive and looked like they were doing well, I'd invite them to come to our clubs. And, My my seven partners did the same thing, Uh, and our employees did the same thing, and our inner circle of close friends did the same thing. So through that process, we created a word of mouth that was very powerful.
0: Did you ever think about, because I come from a tradition where uh, places were membership clubs, Mm -hmm. or membership spaces, I should say. Yes.
1: Did you ever think about becoming a membership operation? Yes, we did. And in fact, it was an effort to do that, but it really wasn't necessary the way we operated. We had strict dress codes. And by the way, I want to make one more comment about radio that you asked me about a minute ago. Uh, Danny and CP would listen to music, uh, you know, with earphones at record record stores to find new cuts that were, had danceable, infectious, danceable beats. Mm -hmm. And so they discovered a lot of new sounds that were never played on radio, like Manu Dibango, Soul Makosa, or Dennis Coffey, Scorpio. And they would play these songs at, the, at our clubs, and patrons would hear them and demand to hear them on the radio. So all of a sudden, there was a sea change in how program directors operated. Now they were being told what to play by, by listeners mm-hmm. who heard it at our clubs, and they wanted to hear the same thing. So uh, next thing you know, the radio stations like BLS told their DJs, "You got to go down to Leviticus and watch what's happening, see what people are getting excited about."
0: And sure, and there were plenty of uh, plenty of DJs that were actually ended up being regulars uh, at Leviticus, and also, you know, I can never remember Noel whether it was Justine's first or Othello first. They both had, it was a club on 8th Avenue. I know it was the best of right. friends space, but I can never remember which one came first.
1: Othello's came first.
0: Okay. <laughs> and then it was. And then was, we
1: changed the name to Justine's. You know, yeah. when we remodeled, we changed the name to Refresh It. And uh, the Dow Twins operated that for us. They were our managers and they did a superb job. They were really like young versions of us we hired them to run Justine's, Othello's then Justine's, because they were about five years younger than us. Yeah. And that age difference meant a slightly different crowd. So less cannibalization with Leviticus.
0: Ah, okay. And uh, again, uh, I remember very clearly Derek Gaines, who used to spin at, yeah. uh, at uh, Justine's. And yes. he, he was a f- top rate, first rate spinner. I oh, want to yeah. ask you one final quick question what was the relationship between your clubs and what came behind it, hip-hop? Did you ever really get into playing hip-hop music? Hip-hop, of course, was, you know, it started up in the Bronx and in upper Manhattan, but to some extent it was, it was I won't say the antithesis, but it was, uh, you know, young, not particularly, you know, uh, I won't say well-dressed, but they, these were, you know, street kids, that were attracted to hip hop. And I always wondered what your relationship was to
1: hip hop. Well, we were afraid of the crowd that hip hop would attract. Uh, Russell Simmons came by our Leviticus Club several times with a trunk full of uh, CDs. He wanted us to play these records. They weren't CDs then, they were records. Mm -hmm. And this is like late 70s, 1979, 1980, around then. And we basically refused because we were, uh, we knew our crowd and we felt comfortable with our crowd. We never had a problem. And we had strict dress codes and the hip hop crowd was different. We didn't know them. It was slightly younger and they didn't dress the way we dressed. And we were concerned about that. So we refused, but we did play one hip hop song that was a big hit years later. And that was Sugar Hill Gang.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Everybody played that because it was so danceable. And you know what? You know why it was danceable? It was Sheik's uh, soundtrack. They yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I want to close out with this. Um, what was it that finally, you know, ended your run at Leviticus and uh, Justine's and some of these other places? What ended up, I won't say killing it, but what? when did you decide that it was time to move on and do something different?
1: That's a great question. But what basically happened, Mark, is we, uh, New York City with the high crime rate started to come down. And uh, with David Dinkins hiring all those police officers, they were cadets under Dinkins and they graduated under Giuliani. Mm -hmm. And the crime rate started to drop. Uh, Manhattan became much more attractive to people. And uh, white flight ended and everything in New York City became more expensive. And one by one, our rents went sky high, huge increases in rents. That's why today it's not even feasible to operate a discotheque like the way we operated in the 70s, because uh, we, were, we hit the time just right, because the high crime rate and white flight meant a lot of these venues were hurting and it, we could get them for a song. Yeah, Uh, You know, today, that's not the case. You'd be paying so much. It would be so expensive to get into a club. Young people wouldn't be able to go, and you'd only get older people, and they don't dance as much. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Um,
0: Since After Dark has come out, Mm -hmm. have you actually heard from people that were a part of that whole scene during that period? What do
1: they tell you about what your clubs meant to them? Uh, the most common comments I hear are that those were some of the greatest days in their lives. They had so much fun and it was safe and they danced all night, which most of us can't do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the good times, uh, the the great memories, a lot of folks met their spouses at our clubs. Some were even married at our clubs or had their receptions at our clubs. So, uh, great memories, a lot of fondness and, um, uh, good experiences, and people met business partners. Uh, they got into, went into business with different folks they met there. So with lifelong friends were formed at those clubs. It was a great experience.
0: Now, no kids named Justine, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, not in my household anyway.
0: <laughs> but I bet some households probably have <laughs> it. I think maybe so. Noel Hankin, thank you so much. The name of the book, After Dark. The Birth of the Disco Dance Party. It's available uh, on Amazon and
1: uh, through... Wherever books are sold. Wherever books books
0: are sold. Yeah. It's a real pleasure talking to you, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley. And music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.